The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. For Pat, and I'm joined by Tony Bates. Tony Bates, of course, clinical psychologist. His uh, recent book is Breaking the Heart Open The Shaping of a Psychologist. And it chronicles his own struggles with mental illness, his work as a psychology, and the meaning that we can find in pain and he, that he did find in pain. Tony was head of psychology for 30 years in St. James Hospital. He established and directed the MSc Cognitive Psychotherapy uh, Programme in Trinity until 2006. And then he founded Jigsaw, the National Centre for Youth Mental Health. And his work as a psychologist calls for a return to human connection in an effort to address mental health issues in young people. You're very welcome, Tony. Thank you. And may I, may, can I just make a slight tweak there? I, I never felt I was mentally ill. I mean, I had very, quite serious mental health issues and I, you know, um, and I was deeply in pain for a lot of my life. But, you know, I never felt there was something wrong with me. I felt there was, you know, I, I, I was struggling. I had problems, I had difficulties, but they were all a consequence of things in my life that had happened that I needed to address and resolve. And <clears throat> I suppose it's taken me most of my life to do that. And this book is a story of coming to terms with um, a lot of early trauma in, in my childhood. But, but you know, that, that was the thing. I never, it concerns me a lot that people, when they see themselves struggling, that they, they, they very quickly conclude there's something, there must be something wrong with me. And maybe there's nothing wrong. Maybe what you're feeling is, the, is, is what you're feeling for a very good reason. And it's, it's your feelings are not your enemy. They're actually inviting you to pay attention to something that needs care and, and needs to be addressed in your life. It could be a past thing or it could be something in the present, you know, some. But it's stress. interesting in the way in, in the yeah. book you talk about your own experiences, because the, the inexplicability to you of them when you're going through them is interesting. Yeah. You talk about one aspect in group therapy where you end up face down on the floor, yeah. keening yeah. in essence yeah. about yeah. previous yeah. memory. Yeah. You talk about the the period that you spent where you effectively moved into the attic of the house for an extended yes, period of months. And yeah. in both instances, you come out at the end, uh, lost is the wrong phrase, but casting around to find what was the catalyst that caused it. No, no, I was a real mess. <laughs> That's not, you know, fine. I'm not trying to, to be defensive in any way about that. But, you know, I uh, that moment in group therapy, it was in... Oh, the eighties and and in eighty five and I mean I was distraught. I I was sitting amid a group of people. They were all psychologists in training. We were learning Gestalt therapy, and and the way you do it is you go away for a weekend and you work on your own issues and each other. And so it was very experiential the training. Um, and I found myself sitting there one morning and just unable to connect with people and I felt there was this glass wall between me and them and I mean that just didn't make any sense and I, and I just I feel cut off I feel I'm looking at you through glass I and then as I began to describe the experience I began to I suppose break down I mean I I just collapsed on the floor and I cried and sobbed and you know this went on for a while um and it was it made no sense to me and then I, I thought perhaps it was my, my I was re 
a rebirth, you know, I was re-experiencing my birth, which was at the time very popular. The idea that our birth had been very painful for us and sometimes we go back and re-experience it. And so I went to my mum and said, look, you know, how was my birth? You know, And she said it was great. It was a lovely morning. It was uh, the 21st of June. It was beautiful. And uh, you came very quickly. There was, Why are you asking? She said. And, and then I told her I had this weird experience and she began to cry. And she said, I, 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 I hoped you would forget. And because I had been at, at age two, nearly three, in fever hospital for four weeks and I had been surrounded by glass and I had uh, measles, secondary encephalitis, and I was expected to die. And she was encouraged not to visit. I was in Cork Fever Hospital and she was asked, she went back to Dublin. And so for four weeks I had no visitor. And I think I probably felt very abandoned by the whole thing. And then when I came out, I was impossible to deal with. And she was pregnant and she had lost my brother a few weeks before. The two of us got sick at the same time he died. And she sent me to Cork to her parents for six months. And so I was disconnected. And and that really uh, left me with, I suppose, uh, you know, my... uh, a lot of pain a lot, and a lot of distress that kept burbling up and, and making me do crazy things. I mean, when I say do crazy things, I mean, you, you know, destructive things to my body, mitching school, shoplifting. I was arrested twice by age 11. And so... But you described some yeah. very distressing instances. There's, a, yeah. there's a, an example of you staying in a neighbour's house where it's your first overnight yeah. in a house that isn't your own family. And you talk about spending more than an hour running laps of the bedroom and then pausing to bite at your own yeah, body. Yeah, but, but it was a, a kind of a compulsive ritual, a kind of a auto-erotic, auto-stimulation, but it was, it was to, to, to stop the pain. And, and I think in a lot of people, self-harm, and that was a form of self-harm, is, is, is intended to stop the pain. Uh, it, it sounds really strange to be doing it, but it was it was completely mood altering. It's like it allowed me to dissociate from what I was feeling into a totally altered state of consciousness, where I'm dashing around the room, biting, biting the you know, and just eventually collapsing into into bed. But, you know, I hadn't been away from home for a long time and I went over to Paddy and Rita who were long since passed. But they were gorgeous people, no children. They'd loved me as a child. They had been neighbours and now they'd moved. And, and they welcomed me and I stayed with them and they... But I felt alone again and it, it re-evoked all of those separation memories. There's an interesting thing in, in the manner in which the book is written because the, the early stages are very autobiographical and the latter stage is then a segue to some degree into your, your clinical and professional background. But the former is regularly used as an insight into the latter. And where you talk about the, your mother being sent home, you actually have a line in it where you said that the doctor said to her, quotes, when he dies, we will publish it in the Cork Examiner. Yes. So the manner in which your mother would find out about the loss of her child would be a a printed uh, um, newspaper ad. And you use that to show the sort of the shift in in medical empathy that has happened over the years. And in that instance, you cite the documentary, the the work done by that psychologist who took the video of the the two-year-old girl. A child of two goes to hospital 
which was published in the same year I was in hospital, 1955. And at that time, people didn't have phones, never mind, uh, you know, mobile phones, they didn't have landlines. You know, that was a real luxury. Maybe it was one person on the street and it was a big deal to, to get to use it and probably very expensive. So ringing Cork was, it was a trunk call, as they called it. And, it, you know, it, it wasn't an option. And so my, my mother was told to look in the papers. Um, I mean, nobody meant any harm. I mean, she had suffered the loss of her second son, five days earlier, and, and now there's me, same thing. And they didn't want her to go through the agony of a second loss. They were sure I was going to die, um, and I, I, I let them down in that regard. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was... But that the child time. of two goes to hospital. There is a there's a paradigm of, of sort of three phases, isn't that right? There's that's right. That's right. Yeah. The the the, the um, there's kind of protest, denial, despair. James Robertson was this sorry brief. He worked with Anna Freud. He was a conscientious objector in the war, and he you know he was, instead of going to war, he went into a hospital, and he was there to put out fires if bombs fell on the hospital in Hampstead Hospital for children, and and. He, Anna Freud asked everybody to write notes if they were working with in a hospital with children to, to keep their observations and to give them to her at the end of the day. I mean, she was real hands on. And, and he did that and he became really interested. And then he noticed these children seemed to go through phases in hospital where initially there was denial. They just a protest and they just didn't want to be there. And, you know, cranky. Then there was a kind of a withdrawal period, a kind of denial of their own upset and then, and so they seemed to settle and very often hospital personnel in, in, misinterpreted their behaviour as that they're doing fine. And then the final stage was when they gave up and they went into despair. And he had great difficulty persuading people in Middlesex Children's Hospital at the time that this was going on. They didn't believe him. They said, no, 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 they all settled. It's no problem. These had very few visitors. They're literally Sunday they were allowed to visit. That was it. He said, no, this is agony. So he didn't know what to do. So he, he bought a, a camera. He'd never made a film. And for £150, he got a loan, bought a camera and put it on front of a girl of two, two who was in hospital for eight days, Laura. And uh, he filmed it. And now that's in the National Archives. It's a very protected. It, it's on YouTube, but it's oh, a very it's a protected. it's a harrowing watch. It's harrowing watch. Harrowing. I, I didn't, when I saw it in UCD, I was in second year in psychology and we were asked to watch this. And I saw it. And again, I went into complete regression. And my whole body, the body doesn't forget. You know, the body keeps and carries the truth of our lives. And it just collapsed in the face of this. I had no idea why. But it, it was my first inkling that, you know, I had an unconscious and my unconscious was carrying a lot of stuff that I didn't have access to. Now, explain one thing to me, Tony, because I, I mentioned that shift from the autobiographical into the clinical. And what happens when you first begin to describe your clinical and professional history is we think we have the answers. You describe CBT and we think, yeah. great. CBT is the answer. And yeah. then you move on to show how often in, in your own instance, a commitment to that as a therapeutic method can, can actually miss things. Then we look at Gestalt therapy and we see again where things can be missed. So over the years, after trying all of the what were once the answers, what do you find as the answer in terms of therapeutic interaction with your patients? Presence. I think it's been present. And I think that... People most, we now know, children, infants need to be heard, to be seen, to be valued and to feel safe. 
particularly in a crisis. Adults, when they ask survivors or people who've used our mental health services, which are often not as healing as we'd like to believe, um, but the ones who have used those, they've said what really mattered to them was that they felt heard, seen, valued and safe. The same thing. And and I think it, 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 these are very highly developed human capacities. It, it sounds easy to, to listen, to, to be present, to be respectful. But actually, it takes a lot of work to get to that place where you can. And so therapists of all persuasions and, and let's, I, I think of psychotherapists like the Irish rugby team. There's lots of them out there, there's CBT, Gestalt, body focus to the psychoanalysis. But actually, they each have their own strength. And you wouldn't trade uh, somebody, you, you know, you wouldn't, you're just comparing Conor Murray and Johnny Sexton. They're different people. They bring different things. And equally, there's different there's space and time for all of these. And we're very lucky to have kind of developed interventions. But I think um, most importantly is being present. And, you know, Freud, I mean, when he was writing and developing and he said the hardest thing he found with the students was to just get them to be present, to pay attention. They're all jumping in with solutions and the insights and interpretations. And he said, how could I just train them to be present? You have a, a lovely set of, of illustrations throughout of your, of your own patient interaction experience. Many of them self-deprecatory, it has to be said. But one of them is the story of the young woman that you treated for a phobia of spiders. Oh God, and she's probably out there somewhere. I haven't, that was a long, long time ago. But it's a lovely illustration of the I, presence. You know, I made mistakes as a clinician. Um, I, I regret them. And, and often they were, you know, because I thought I had the answer and I was doing great. <laughs> and this was a girl who, you know, 14 and she had a severe spider phobia and, and, and she came to see me and she, her mother asked, you know, and I worked with adults, but I was so good at cognitive therapy and phobias, I could cure anything. And so I took her in and for eight sessions and I got her from being you know, squirming in the corner of my office while I had a plastic spider in a plastic urinal bottle sealed. She couldn't take that to being able, and I'm not exaggerating, uh, to have two spiders crawling up each of her bare arms at the same time. Now, I mean, you know, I was out to kind of, you know, kill the all blacks. I mean, I was going to, we're going to, we're going to kill this fear. Damn, no way was she going to ever be afraid again. And I felt, I remember the last day and she was coming back, her mother came in and her friend came in. They were all involved in this. And I, 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 she, I was, she, just before she went, I, I, I said, so how do you feel now? And I was, you know, maybe expecting that she'd, you know, and thank me and say, well, my life has changed completely forever. But she didn't. She said, well, you know, I used to, when I felt anxious, I used to blame the spiders. But now I can't. And I'm just anxious. I had missed the point completely. Completely. Her, the, her symptom, which I thought was a problem, was her way of managing her life. She put all her anxiety into spiders. But what was really happening for her, I have no idea. And to this day, I have no idea. It is a, it's a, a fascinating mm. read. The book is called Breaking the Heart Open, The Shaping of a Psychologist. And it's Tony Bates's insights into the um, clinical side of his extensive experience and also very interesting in his own uh, life. Tony, thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Anton. Thank you. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.